You can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. If you're new to getting around in the Bible, it's just at the end of your Bible, close to the last book, which is Revelation, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, as, as you turn there, I want to mention to you an experience that I had earlier this spring. I walked out our back door onto the patio, and I walked by this bush that I've walked by hundreds of times, and a bird flushed out of the bush and flew away. And I thought, oh, that's weird. There's a, was there a bird in the bush? And, of course, the light, light bulb turns on, and uh, I look inside the nest, and I peer down in there. And, oh, I gave it away. Inside the bush, and what do I find but a nest? Perfect, beautiful little cup. And uh, then you look closer, and there are four blue eggs in the nest. And it's only about this high off the ground, so we can see it. Our kids can see it. And uh, we start learning about robins. And we're looking in there, and we're seeing, oh, they, they, they only take about two weeks uh, before they hatch. And so uh, we don't know how long they've been there, but we know it's not going to be long. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And, of course, the mom is uh, sitting on top of the eggs, incubating them, keeping them warm. This is a little earlier in the spring when it was still cool out. And uh, we're so eager. And we eat dinner out there on our back patio a lot. And uh, we go right by this bush. There's no way to get away from it. It, You know, we could go around the front door, but that's a little excessive. So we're just tiptoeing around, trying not to scare the mama bird away. We're getting very attached to these birds. And then that day comes when the first one is hatched. We go out there, and there's still three blue eggs, but then there's that one little baby nestling, and they're just hideous. They're the ugliest things that you've ever seen. They're all pink, except their eyes are this deep purple, and there's no feathers. It's almost, they're just kind of gross. They have these big beaks, and they squirm in there, and, but we love them because they're our birds, and uh, not, not very long later, they're all hatched and in the nest and featherless, and uh, we're just really enjoying this. Our kids are enjoying this. And one, one day we're sitting out there eating dinner. And uh, one of our kids said, oh, I think one of the birds just fell out of the nest. And so I, of course, said, no, nah, there's no way that's true. But they did. We went over and looked on the bottom. Just at the bottom on the ground, there was one of those little wiggling birds down on the ground. And so we think, oh, can we touch it? And you look it up and these reputable bird sources say it's a myth. You can actually touch birds. The mom won't abandon them. And so I get on my black rubber gloves and we go out there and it's a whole family affair. We're rescuing these birds. It's quite a scene. You know, it's wonderful. And uh, we put the bird back in and he survives. And uh, not long later, we get to see two of them fledge. That means when they fly the coop. And uh, they, they can't really fly. They hop and sort of fly a little. And we're all anxious because there's cats in the neighborhood. And anyways, they, uh, as far as we know, all, we like to think, they successfully all flew away and made it. And then one day, the Lancasters are over. And we go out. And I'm going to show them the nest. And guess what? There are four more eggs in there. Apparently, robins do that. They have two batches sometimes. And uh, anyways, we go through this whole process all over again. And we're just loving every minute of it. And then one day, I'm sitting in the, the, the den right there where the patio is, and we hear this awful commotion, a lot of bird noise, not happy bird noise. It was clamor. It was bad. And I walk out and I look out the window, and there on our fence is a hawk. Ooh. Oh, boy. And uh, all kinds of birds are swooping, not just robins, but blue jays are out there. It's like a whole community bird fight trying to scare away this hawk. And so, of course, what do I do but run out there like a madman and shoo this hawk away trying to save my birds, you know, my little baby birds. And then uh, 
I looked over, you know, you just, it's kind of a chaotic scene, and you go back to the nest, and you want to see, are there any birds in there? And, uh, there are, there's one bird in there, and they're about fledging time, so maybe they flew away, but then on the ground, there's another one on the ground. It had fallen out, and it wasn't able to get around, so I picked him up, same scene all over again. At this point, this is the third bird I put back in the nest, and uh, here's, here's where all this is leading. When... I'm helping this last baby bird. I've scared away the hawk. And I'm putting the baby bird back in the nest. His parents, the mama and daddy bird, are furious with me. They are totally persuaded I'm about to destroy their baby. They don't trust me at all. Now, we have a lot of history at this point. We've really taken care of these birds for a long time. And, I mean, we've bent over backwards, right? Trying to help these birds. And the parents are not persuaded at all. They don't know me. They can't see me for who I really am. And I know that's because they're birds, but still, as I'm helping their, their baby bird, it's just I'm like, they just don't know who I am. They're suspicious. And I think it is true to say that to one degree or another, for a lot of us in the room today, we're like that with God. We live in his world. He provides for us. He gives us life. He blesses us. He's nothing but good to us constantly. And then we turn and look at him with suspicion. Our sermon text today is from 1 John 4, 8. And I have made it my prayer that God will do a number on that suspicion. Just like those birds, right? That he'll change us. That we'll be able to not look at him with the eye of suspicion, but that he'll show us who he is in reality and fundamentally alter our whole conception of who is our God. Who is he? What's he like? That's my prayer for today. Listen to the word of the Lord, word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. I'm only going to read three words. God is love. One more time. This is the word of our God. God is love. Let's pray. Make it your prayer that God will do what I've just been describing. Help you to see who he is in truth. Father, that's our prayer. Would you help us? Would you be the lifter of our head? Open our eyes. Help us to see you as you are in reality. All the baggage, strip it all away. All the wrong ideas, all of it. Strip it all away and show us your face. Show us your nature. Reveal yourself to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon is going to have three parts. The first and most important part is God. Who is he? That's what I've just been talking about. The text in 1 John 4 will be, uh, it'll give rise to the second part, which has to do with implications or results of who God is. So because God is, that's point one, he has done certain things, that's point two. And then we'll have some applications that are more specific and granular to our lives. That'll be the third part. The first part is God. Well, I mentioned the robins. They had no idea 
who I was, and because they didn't know who I was, they thought I would act the way that they feared, right? They thought I was worse than I was, and so would act in the way that they feared. Well, that's our task for this morning. Who is God? That's the first question, not what will he do, who is he? And I want to ask you this morning, where do you start in trying to build a definition or a description or an understanding from who God is? Not everybody has started at the same starting point in trying to answer that question. Do you start with creation as a reference point, like Arius did? You could define God as the only uncreated being. That would be true. But is that your starting point? The only uncreated being. The problem with that is if you define God that way, if that's your reference point, you made him need creation in order to define him. You have, if you're going to call him the only uncreated being, there must be creation in order to define him. That won't work. Do you define him instead based on how he relates to us? Like he made us or other ways he relates to us. He's full of wrath against sinners or uh, even that he loves us. But again, your reference point is, is us. Your definition requires our presence to describe him. That would be wrong. Those things are true, but that would be not a good place to start in defining God. Let's think about creation for a minute. The Bible's crystal clear. Everything that exists came from God. All of it. The worlds were prepared by the word of God, as Hebrews says. But what about before he did that? What about when there were no worlds? There was no planet Earth. There was no galaxy. There was no universe, no material, no matter, no nothing. Before that, the Bible's clear that God created everything in a moment. And I'm asking about if... if it boggles your mind, but when he hadn't done that yet, what then? It's easy to imagine the universe as it is now and then try to just wipe out all the material and say, oh, we have only an empty space. But God made the space. What about when there is no space? Or if you try and back up in time, thousand years ago, a million years ago. What, how do you think about before there was time? Before there was time. What? It boggles the brain. You, you can't latch hold of what that was, but the Bible talks about that. Jesus talks about that, that time before the foundation of the world. Back when the only thing that was was God, only Him. Outside of time, outside of space, God only. How would you begin to define Him then? There was no us, there was no creation. There was no material, no matter, no nothing. You couldn't call Him uncreated in that context. It would make no sense. There's no creation to contrast him with. You couldn't define him in his relationship to us because we didn't exist. We didn't exist. The animals, the birds, the fish didn't exist. Planet Earth didn't exist. Nothing existed except 
God. When he was there, there's a thing. What was he like? What was his personality, if I can use that word? What was his nature? Who is he? Where do you even start in trying to conceive of him? And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the most basic and foundational place to start is with the understanding that our God, the only true God, is triune. God is Trinity. Fundamental to the Christian faith is that there is one God eternally existing in three persons. That doctrine is foundational. It is non-negotiable. It is basic. There is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. The clearest document that I know in describing the Trinity is the Athanasian Creed. Here's a a sampling. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's a sampling. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. That of the Holy Spirit, still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty co-eternal. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. Last paragraph. This is important for where we're going in our definition of God. The Father was neither made, nor created, nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. End quote. This is the answer to the question, where do you start trying to build a definition or a description about God? You don't start with things that make him dependent on created things for your definition. You start with God in Trinity. The first person of the Trinity is the Father. He's called that from first to last in the scriptures. He's said to have led his people in the Old Testament like a father would lead his children, or he condescends and is patient with his people like a father. And then Jesus comes and continually refers to, quote, my father. And then he turns to his people and says, your father. The first person of the Trinity is father. And I'm inviting you now to ask what that means. What is a father? A father is a lot of things. But foundationally, what does it mean to be a father? Let me let Michael Reeves, who wrote a fantastic book called Delighting in the Trinity, give a very brief description of a father. 
quote, A father is a person who gives life, who begets children. If, before all things, God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently, listen closely, an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. Before any person in this room existed, to whom was the Father giving life? Toward whom was he, as Reeve said, inherently outgoing? The answer is that the Father, in keeping with his identity, has forever, will always be eternally giving life to his Son. He's the Son. A Son is, receives life from his Father. The second person of the Trinity is called the Son. He's the one begotten by and loved by the Father from all eternity. Can you imagine Father and Son before the world was in a Father and Son relationship? The giving of life, the delight of the Father, the Son obedient to and rejoicing in the love of His Father for endless eternities. This is our God. This is foundational to his nature. And that brings us to love. The sermon text today says God is love. Did God love before there was creation? He did. What's the connection between the fatherhood, him being a father, the first person of the Trinity, and the idea of Love. Reeve said there was an inherent tendency of the Father to overflow like a fountain constantly. It, to be a fountain requires overflow. If God is a fountain, He is inherently forever overflowing. What's the connection with love? That is very much the same idea. Michael Reeves again put it this way To be the Father then means to love. To give out life, to beget the Son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in His Son. 1 John 4 8 tells us God is love. Not only that He does loving things, which He does, He always acts in keeping with His nature, more on that later, but He says God is love. Something about God, something fundamental to his nature, unchanging based on context. God is forever love, a fountain that overflows inescapably constantly. That is our God. In other words, God was love before there was you. You are not required to exist for God to be love. Because the first person that he loves is not you or me. 
We're doing a sermon series this summer. This is the first sermon on the love of God. There'll be about seven, I think, maybe eight, on the love of God. Let me ask you a question. Think in your mind. Don't answer out loud. If I say to you we're doing a sermon series on the love of God, what comes into your mind? What are we going to be talking about? A sermon series on the love of God. My guess is that for most of us, maybe all of us, the first thing that comes to our mind is God's love toward us. I do not want to minimize God's love toward us. But 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love and he has been love before we existed from all eternity. He didn't become love when he created the world. In eternity past, forever, unchanging as God is, the Father, not, I won't say was loving, I'll say God eternally is loving his Son. You should think that first. Think of Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever been there. Surely you've seen it. A huge, wide waterfall. It's huge. I was looking at it, pictures of it, the other day. It's giant. Now imagine if all that rushing water with all its weight converged, not all along the width of the waterfall, but into one focal point square in the center. And there's Christ. There's the Father, the deluge of his love, focusing down onto his Son forever. Jesus knew the Father's love. He knew it. He relished it. He talked about it. He prayed to the Father in John 17, and he said, You loved me before the foundation of the world. It's something foundational about God within the Trinity before the creation of the world. The Father loves the Son. God is love. Consider a desert, a desert scene. There's nothing there. There's sand. There's no life. It's too hot. The sun beats down. The waves, the way that the air looks different when the ground is so hot. There's nothing. And you're standing there looking around. You see nothing but desert. And out of the ground starts to bubble up water. And it, eventually you have a big puddle in the sand and then a lake. And then rushing rivers start to flow out all directions down the hills out from the lake and of course slowly plants eventually start to sprout up little green buds start to come up and with enough time you have a whole forest not an oasis like you see in in uh, movies and stuff but the whole land now covered in forest everything and then the animals you get the bugs the birds the fish fill the lake the beasts crawl along And it all comes from the fountain, right in the middle. That is the nature of our God. All the old dead guys, they love to call him the fountain. And they didn't make it up. God himself called him that in Jeremiah 2.13. He calls himself the fountain of living water. This is our God. And when John says that God is love... He is clearly referring to the Father. Look in the text. 1 John 4, 8. 
The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. All right, next verse. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that who? That God has sent his only begotten son. So now he gets more specific. The God who is love is the same God who sends his son. In other words, he's referring to the Father, the eternal fountain of love and goodness that gives life. If you can say, everywhere he goes, anything he touches, life, overflowing. Now, point two, the nature of God expressed. We're going to look more carefully now at the text in 1 John and see the way that the love of God, his nature, overflows. I've been saying all along, he overflows in blessing and outgoing and the giving of life. Well, John gives us some specific ways in which he does that in our case. In our case. The first thing that John says in the paragraph comes in verse 7, where John leads with the command, let us love one another. And then he gives two reasons why it's fitting for the people of God to love one another. Do the people in this room love one another? We had better love one another. Some terrible things are betrayed if we don't love one another. Let us love one another. For, reason one, love is from God. It's sourced in God. Love only comes from Him. You don't have God, you do not have love. You may have something, it is not love. Love is sourced in God. It's like a rare earth mineral. You can imagine there's only one mine in the whole world that's got that mineral. There's only one place. And if you have it, everybody knows you've got it from there. That's the way love is. Love comes from God and God alone. Reason to love one another, number two. He says there that if I can summarize or paraphrase, a father who is love begets children who love. In other words, the way he put it is, Everyone who loves has been born of God. So horses, male horses, beget what? Not lambs or cows. Horses, right? Fathers look like their sons. The red-headed dads a lot of times have red-headed boys. The black-haired men have black-haired boys and so on and so forth. Sons look like their father. And John is saying, if God is love, all of the children that he beget... Love like he loves. Always. And he puts it negatively. There's no wriggling around John's absolutes. He's a good teacher. He boxes you in. You can't make exceptions and excuses. And But what about? No, he puts it negatively in verse 8. Builds the fence taller. Here's what he says. Look at verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. One more time. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. The whole thing hinges on the character of God. That's in the word because, right? Because God is love. And if that's the case, God is love, some things are manifestly true. If you don't love, if you're not a person full of love like God, it means you don't know him. Because if you did know the God who is loving like that, 
Something fundamental would happen to you, you would change. You've all known people like that, surely. Someone who, when you're around them, they affect you. We'll say, in this case, for the better. Being around them makes you want to be a better person. It makes you want to love people more. It makes you want to love Christ more. You know what it is to be around those people. You leave their presence and you're refreshed, you're changed, you're invigorated. And that's a mere person, a mere man. Imagine what it is to know God in fellowship, the eternal, omnipotent fountain of all love and goodness. To know him changes you unavoidably, always. And if you aren't changed, or as John says, if you don't love, you therefore do not know God. Because God is love, right? That's the logic of the text. And then in verse 9 and 10, John tells us in the most pointed and most specific way that the character of God, God is love, was made visible. Your text, your version might say, in us, or it might say, among us, or it could read, in our case. The love of God was manifested in us, among us, in our case. So I've, I've been up here trying to help you see that the love of God doesn't only have to do with us. The love of God overflows chiefly onto His Son like Niagara Falls, and it overflows in creation and blessing, and it overflows in our case. There is an overflow of God for us, and John tells you what it is in our case. His answer is that our Father... The eternal fountain of love and goodness sent his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world so that we would live through him. The resurrected Christ would forever have a people for God, having been sent and returned to God. He claimed a people for himself through his only begotten son, even his sufferings and resurrection. And the father did that despite the fact that we did not love him when we should have, despite the fact that we spurned him. In fact, maybe that all the more animated him to shower the undeserving with his love and grace and redeeming power in the gospel. So I want you to think about something that we say a lot around here, and I know what we're getting at. Here's what we say. It is hard to imagine that a God like him would love a person like me. There is some truth in that. I think there's some mistake in that. I know what we're trying to do. We're trying to highlight the high holiness of God. Holiness means separateness. There's no sin, positively good and pure and right, morally and otherwise and always. That is God. And that is what we say. A person like him could possibly love a person like me. We know, at least in part, our own sin and frailty. Right? How can it be that a person like him with that nature would love us? The problem with that is it makes it sound like God has been inconsistent with his nature. He's done something irregular. He's made an exception to the way that he is. Which is impossible. God only acts in accordance with his character. It actually should not be surprising... If you know who he is, it should not be surprising that God saved his people in the way that he has. 
Or to say it the other way, it should not surprise you if you know the God who is love, that he has loved even people as unworthy as you and as me. It is not a surprise. It's totally in keeping with his character. It's exactly who he is. That's what he's like. He's much better than you imagine him to be. He overflows with an inexplicable, hard-to-imagine goodness and love, even on to the undeserving rebels like us. That's, it's not a surprise. Of course, of course, a being like him would love in that way. That's who he is. God is love. Because of who he is, in keeping with his character, not an exception, the norm, not a bug, a feature, that's who he is. He sent his own son to die a bloody cross with a great heart of love for an undeserving, sinful, wicked people like us. And he did it with a smile on his face. He loves you. You can't stop him from loving you. That's his character. It's his nature. It's who he is. In fact, if you look at the, come at it from the other end and you look at the cross and you see this great heart of love, you shouldn't say, oh, I can't believe he acted like that. You should say, oh, I can't believe he is like that. It shows who he is. It's like, imagine a sunflower drooping after two weeks of overcast. No sunshine, they need sun. Not thriving. And then imagine, if I may, the sun parting the clouds and delighting to give itself to the flower. And then it perks up and receives its life and sustenance from the sun. That is the nature of our God. And so many of us, we like to droop like the flower. And God is saying, no, no, lift your head and I'll fill you with life and goodness. I'm better than you know. May the Lord give us grace not to be like that flower, but to believe with a sort of, it feels audacious. It feels bold. But God tells us we ought to have that kind of boldness. We approach the throne in Christ with boldness. The impossible. But he said, do it with boldness because this is who our God is. May he give us the grace to believe he's as good as he says that he is. We have two applications. This is the third section of our sermon. Two applications. They are parenting and the sexual revolution. Not together. Those are separate. Parenting. Earthly parenting, it's an easy parallel. God is Father. There are massive implications for you as fathers. I'm talking especially to dads in the room. Put simply, as you know, earthly fathers are to mirror our Heavenly Father. We exist as fathers only because of His nature. We should want to make that pattern tight and accurate. We want to be like Him. We love Him. Now, I know that we fail. I know that we are failed against, if I can speak that way. Many of us have absentee fathers, abusive fathers. I know that we live in a broken world. I know all that happens. I'm not minimizing it. I realize that. And yet, those experiences do not negate the pattern. Those experiences, those tragic realities, do not change the nature and character of God. He is every bit as good still as Father in all the ways that I've just been explaining. The world is broken. He remains infinite in goodness and 
May he give us grace to father like he fathers. Give you a clear example of what I'm talking about. Just one. When your child disobeys your specific instructions, intentionally rebellious, and you catch him or her. Think of last time it happened. How did you respond? Or maybe one child humiliates another on purpose, deliberately being cruel, and you see it. Or maybe one of your children looks you in the eye with that unbudging stubbornness and defiance, and they won't admit that what they did is wrong when it's so obvious. How are you going to respond? How, maybe I should ask, would our Father, our Heavenly Father, respond? I'm going to argue that in that moment, God is love and that you are to pour forth love. I mean... You're to overflow in that moment to the undeserving child with goodness and grace and help. Or as Paul Tripp put it one time, every time your child responds in a sinful way, that is a perfect opportunity for you to be used of the Lord to help them, to give them grace. Now, there's not a man among us, or in this case also moms in that example, who has succeeded every time in that. That's putting it really mildly. I know that. But that is the calling of God. That is the character of our God. To look someone in the eye who's sinning against you and to respond with an overflowing love and grace and life and help. Help your child who's trapped in sin even willingly. Now that often means telling them what they did and are doing is wrong. We'll come to that in a minute. Love does not mean unconditional approval. That is not love. It is not. Oftentimes it means telling your child that what they're doing is wrong. Oftentimes that means disciplining them so that they learn reaping and sowing are not separable. You sow this, you will reap this. We also know that confrontation and discipline can be done, often is done, From anger, which hurts or seeks to destroy, rather than a heart of love, which seeks to bless. But God is love. Even when love meant giving his own son to bless a wicked people, he did it. And that's exactly who he is. And such is our calling as parents. The second application has to do with the sexual revolution. This will take me a minute. We all are aware that asexual revolution is sweeping all of Western society. Things that would have once been totally unthinkable are now celebrated and normalized, pushed as a moral good. That revolution is taught by the laws of our land since Obergefell, taught by screens which fill our homes as art forms tell us what's beautiful and true, taught by the earbuds that fill our ears as we listen to the lyrics, normalizing, celebrating, arguing for, and evangelizing a different kind of religion, the sexual revolution. And the revolutionaries don't only want permission. They don't want your... Uh, what's okay for you is okay for you. 
They want positive affirmation. They want you on the train cheering. They want celebration. They want a hearty stamp of approval. They're coming after you. And anything less, if you don't give that, you are automatically branded as a bigot and a hater. You're automatically told you are not a loving person. That's why we're talking about this. What is love? You drive down the city streets, you see, I see houses that say, love is love. And the implications are obvious. Churches have banners that say, God loves you. And the background is a rainbow. There's a push, a massive society-wide push to redefine love and thus redefine God. Love, according to that ideology, has a particular definition. Love is unconditional acceptance of another person's claimed sexual identity. That is what love is. It is a warped, it's like they took the definition of love, put it in the fire, melted it down, took it back out, made an idol of it in a totally different shape, and it is not love. It's something else. And that problem is not one that's outside of the church. Something that will have no effect on us in here, in our enclave. That would be naive. The demographic group that's most likely to claim some sort of identity which fits in the revolution is especially young people. And the last time I checked, we have somewhere around 150 young people who belong to members of this congregation. A whole bunch in this room right now, maybe 100-ish. Will none of them be seduced by a redefinition of what love is? I know that uh, the attacks will come. They're already coming. They live in the same world that we live in. Complicating things more, I said that it's not something that's out there and won't affect us. It's, it's more than just who the revolutionaries are going after. There's also subtle shifts in our assumptions. Subtle shifts in our, we call them, presuppositions which make the whole revolution seem more plausible, more possible, more, oh, well, give it some sense of credence. Well, that's because of the way that we think. A presupposition is like, if you go back 100 years ago, a person had on blue glasses, they viewed the whole world through a blue lens. And today, we have a different set of presuppositions or assumptions about the way the world is, and our glasses are all red. And maybe we wouldn't even be aware of it but I think our glasses, many times, are more red than we know. What am I talking about? Presuppositions. That would be things like the origin of the universe or what it means to be a person or the meaning of life or what is love. We can't get lost in the weeds here. We could. We mustn't. I'm going to recommend to you Carl Truman's book, came out in 2019. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you are bookish, you should read it. It's 400 pages or so. It's long. It's wonderful. You should read it. And you say, I'm not reading that. And I say, he also released a shorter, more accessible version of the same thing. 
Now I've got you. It's called Strange New World. It's about 200 pages, and it's meant to be accessible to every person in this room who's 14 and over, 12 and over. You should read it. It's helpful. I, another way of saying it is, the way that you view the world is shaped more by the world than you are currently aware of. And part of the goal of the Christian life is to seek to bring every thought captive to Christ. To view the world increasingly in a way that is not only consistent with the scriptures, but birthed from the scriptures. So the problem is not only one out there. It's a problem with us. It's a problem with what some of us assume here today. So what will become of our young people? What will become of each of us? Is there an anchor that's strong enough to hold fast when the rushing river and all those torrents of modern secular ideologies start to pull us down the stream toward abandoning a joyous embrace of what God has revealed is true? That torrent is coming. Is there an anchor that you can throw in that's strong enough to hold even against that kind of rushing river? And I'm going to submit to you that one of the most important anchors is a firm grasp on the God who is love. That's why we're here. The God who is love. It, it's, not, it's important, it's not enough to only show from the Bible that the Bible says clearly that deviations from God's ordained pattern in marriage and sexual activity, it's all wrong. All the deviations are sinful. That's important, it's not enough. We need more. Because God gives us more. We need to take everything that he gives to us. We need to see and worship and have fellowship with the God who looks at you with joy and says, I'm love. You need to know him. You need to have fellowship with him. We need to savor the glory of God in Trinity, Father eternally loving and begetting the Son. We need to rejoice with fire in our bones as we see the way that that endless fountain of goodness and love overflowed in creation and blessing because that's just who he is. And especially that one of the great, glorious, wonderful overflows in creation is that of male and female. That comes straight out of the glorious heart of God who is love. Male and female, he created them. The created order, including God's design in sexuality, is a stunningly beautiful masterpiece. It cannot be improved. Imagine going to the Louvre and looking at a masterpiece and trying to improve it. You start trying to improve it and you defile the whole thing. You've ruined it. You've drained all the goodness out of it when you start trying to change it. You can't improve on a God like that displaying his glory and overflowing in love in the created world, including his design for sexuality, male and female, and marriage. There is no improvement. We need to see our God as a God of love who rejoices in blessing humankind with the incalculably good gift, which is marriage. One among many blessings, yes, but a very good one. A good gift from a good God. We need to receive God's design in the created order as a rich, valuable blessing from a joy-filled, 
overflowing, smiling God. And then when claims that go to the contrary come, you won't be impressed. There's an anchor. Throw it in. Worship God, the good giver of good gifts. Get to know him more. But we need to ask for a minute. I've been mentioning what is love. I mentioned that the sexual revolutionaries have redefined love. They threw it in the fire, came out something else. We need to see the way that God's love in the way that he deals with our sin has some particular contours. I mentioned that love is not unconditional acceptance, unconditional affirmation of everything about you. That's not consistent with the God who is love. That's not consistent with the way that he expressed his love to you. It's not. If love means unconditional approval and celebration, God's love in the gospel makes no sense. In fact, Christ died on the cross to save us from our sin, to destroy the works of the devil, to put our sin to death, to deliver us from bondage, which is sin. He doesn't accept us. In one sense, he does, right? He, he loves you despite your sin, but he loves you enough to take you out of your sin. He rescues us from sin. This is love. This is real love. This is hard love. It's cheap, easy, counterfeit love to just say, well, I just accept you the way that you are on all accounts, and I won't do the hard work of trying to help you when you need it most. No. God has real love, real blessing to his people. Would it be loving? Let me ask you. Would it be loving if God knew you were in sin? Let's name other sins. Anger. Wrath, jealousy, bitterness, malice, deceit. He knew. And he said, I accept you the way that you are. And he left you to rot in them. It's not love. It's not love. Our God comes and he really does the best thing for his people and frees us from sin. Delivers us from sin. Both its penalty and increasingly its presence in our lives. So the church, if God is love, and he is, what sort of people ought we to be, particularly as it relates to this sexual revolution? What should our culture be? How should we be? What kind of place should we have? Because I'm telling you, I'm telling you today, on the 10th of July, 2022, there's going to be more people, there's going to be teenagers who are going to come and they're going to tell you, hey, let me tell you what's been going on with me. I'm having this going on. I'm thinking about all this. I'm confused. Maybe I'm far down this road. What, what, how should we be? That's not a hypothetical problem. It's coming. Unavoidable. We should not be the love that approves of what God says is sinful. That is not God's love. God forbid we would call that love. And yet, we ought to love the way that God loves. Doing good to the person according to the standards that God has set. Doing good 
to a person in a way that God agrees is good. That's love. Think of the child, right? We talked about the disobedient child, the rebellious child. They come to you, they're sinning against you. You want to help them. You want to do what you can to do good to them. You want to help deliver them from their sin. You want to, this is maybe the simplest way of saying it, you want to help them to repent and then to move towards Christ in faith. That's the kind of church we want to be with a lot of patience, with a lot of gentleness, with a lot of truth. That's who we have to be. John tells us, let us love one another, for love is from God. So we end now with the robins. They lived in my yard. They saw me every day. They still don't know me. They still don't know me. I've only blessed them perpetually. I manicure their bush. I put their nestlings back into the nest. I take great care not to disturb them while they're incubating chasing away predators, but they don't know me. They're suspicious of me. They think I'm out to get them. They've misunderstood my character. Have you been this way? With your Heavenly Father? Imagine, fathers, how it would be if one of your children was having a difficult time believing that you really loved them when you did. having a hard time embracing your love. And your heart just breaks for them, and you want to help them, and you want to do whatever you can to do good to them. You know you love them, and you want to tell them, and you want to help them see. Now imagine God, our Heavenly Father, with His smile. I love you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to do what's necessary to bless you, to give you faith, to help you to rest in my goodness. We, unlike the robins, can change. We can be persuaded of God's great love. We look at the evidence. It's what John tells us in 1 John chapter 4. He sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we would live through the Son. And he sent his Son to die on a cross, he says, as a propitiation a wrath-bearing, wrath-removing sacrifice substitute in our place. Our Father sent the Niagara Falls Son of His love to die that death out of love for you. And He did it not despite His character. He did it because that's exactly the kind of person that He is. Let's pray. Father, we praise you with our feeble, stammering lips, but you are God. From eternity past, better than our wildest imagination. You tell us in Jeremiah, you are the fountain of living waters. In our text today, You are love. Help us to see the evidence, to to see how you've loved us in Christ and his propitiating death and his glorious life-giving resurrection like water that would cover the whole earth, life to all your people spreading far and wide. Help us to see your great 
heart of love. Help us to see you. Make us have fellowship with you. Or like John says, the one who does not love does not know God. Father, we pray. Father, we pray. You would help us to know you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.